we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Ephesians 2.30. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story. And most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister and an object of God's wrath, or at least I was. Ephesians 2.3 says all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Other versions of the Bible might call us children of wrath or objects of wrath, and it's talking about the wrath of God. We were objects of the wrath of God. Thank God for past tense. And I mean that literally. Thank God that we were objects of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is real, guys. It abides on each one of us until we make the decision to turn to him. And I am so thankful for the grace of God that convicts us of sin and draws us to him. None of us has the slimmest hope in eternity, if not for that. If not for God drawing us near, we are as hopeless as Israel was in these verses. Let me read to you some verses that we're going to look at today in Ezekiel 22. It says in verse 17, And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Now, these verses about a furnace and dross and all that, it might sound familiar. There's lots of passages in the Bible about God putting someone through the furnace, okay? It's a familiar motif in the Bible, especially when you look at the biblical prophets. Um, God often talks about purifying somebody through the furnace, putting someone through the flames to test them, to refine them, to purify them. Suffering produces perseverance, and then perseverance produces character. All that stuff, it's all about getting put to the test and we come out better with all that dross burned away or, or purified from us. In Ezekiel, he's using that motif in a different way. God is saying, and I, and I think it's intentional, he uses it this one way all these other times to talk about testing us and purifying us, but Ezekiel twists it a little bit. God says he's going to put Israel into the furnace, but these particular Israelites, they are not going to come out refined and purified. They're just going to be burned up. They are dross of silver. That means they are all the impurities that are going to come out whenever you superheat a metal. They're a bunch of impurities, and they are going to be scraped away. They are going to be discarded. They're spiritually dead. There's no link to God unless, unless they're drawn to him in some way. Other than that, they're spiritually dead. Verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Ezekiel is a guy who's familiar with the practice 
of metallurgy that's superheating the metal so you can purge the impurities. And he draws on this illustration with his fellow Israelites because he's making a point. And, and I am not a metallurgist, okay? I don't have a good understanding about what's going on here, as in I haven't seen this with my own eyes before. I've, I guess I've seen videos and I've read, I've read about it in books. But here, here's the thing. Rather than researching it and pretending that I know what I'm talking about, I'm going to read a passage here from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. It's on Ezekiel. It's by Daniel Block. This is a commentary that I keep open next to me as I prepare these studies. And I'll just let, I'm just going to read from it and let you hear for yourself an explanation of what is going on. I'm going to read this. It's going to take about a minute. If you find it boring, just skip ahead about a minute. I'm just going to explain the process of refining the silver. It says the process of extracting and refining silver involved two principal stages. First, using charcoal or wood as fuel. The ore was gently roasted in a furnace, which might have been nothing more than a hole in the ground. This process caused the sulfur to escape as sulfur dioxide gas and the lead to oxidize, producing lithurge. When the ore had been appropriately desulfurized, the temperature was raised, producing a metallic lead-silver alloy that collected at the bottom of the furnace. Second, the silver was separated from the lead by a process of cupellation, which involved the melting down of the alloy in a shallow, porous clay or bone ash receptacle. By sending a stream of air across the surface of the molten mass, the lead and other impurities were preferentially oxidized, producing a dross on the surface of the liquid ore. This dross, which contained most of the lead, was then skimmed off. The remaining lead was absorbed by the porous couple and the silver, still in solution, was drained away. So this is the process here of what, it, what Ezekiel is talking about, um, the practice of metallurgy. The, the dross was separated from the silver. The pure and the impure was separated in the furnace. And God says, I'm going to put the people in Jerusalem through the furnace, but by the time they're done, it's going to reveal that, they're, that they were not any silver at all. They were all impure, every last one of them. Nobody's the silver. Everyone is the dross. Okay, and that's what God is going to reveal as he puts them through the furnace. So here's a lesson to take away from that. Remember that God does not grade on a curve. Okay, God puts his way to salvation out there. If nobody accepts it, then nobody gets it. Okay, if they're all dross, they're all dross. They're all doomed. Okay, if they're all doomed, they're just all doomed. God doesn't pick like the top 10% of the best people in church. He doesn't pick the top 50% of the best people in church and take them to heaven. It doesn't work like that. God doesn't grade on a curve. You either submit to God as the Lord or you don't. Okay, so that's why we got to remember we shouldn't compare ourselves to our neighbor. We shouldn't compare ourselves to the other people in our church. We shouldn't think, oh, I'm I'm one of the most spiritual people at my church. I'm way more spiritual than the clowns in this place. I'm more sold out to God than any of them. Well, if you think that, that's a dangerous thought, because whenever we think that we're more righteous than the person next to us, that's when we start making excuses for our own sins. We think, oh, well, God must be happy with me because, you know, I'm, I'm doing way better than those other people. I give this much to the church. I give this much to charity. I did this nice thing. No, well, that's not how we, that's not how we got to think about things. God is not grading us on a curve. He's grading us by the word. Okay. Especially important for us to remember right now as America is just inching along toward Sodom and Gomorrah status. <laughs> if, you, if you listen to the previous episode, we talked about how we are just exporting evil all over the world, doing it through our government. We do it through Hollywood. We do it through pornography. If you lived in Sodom, um, that would be a dangerous place to just compare yourself to your neighbor and just think that you're okay because 
you're doing better than them. That would be a dangerous place to do that. And in America, I would say, is a dangerous place to do that as well. Israel made that same comparison. They thought, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that's the purest example of evil. At least we're not like them. But if you remember in chapter 16, God said Jerusalem was way worse than Sodom. And Israel was about to learn this lesson the hard way. All right, we're going to go through the last oracle of the chapter now. And this is really, um, if you remember, we started chapter 22 last time. The first oracle was all about why Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. It had 15 indictments from God, okay? 15 reasons that he will destroy a nation. So last time was about why. And then the second oracle that we just read, we could say that was the what, okay? What is going on? The current situation in Jerusalem. And it's that they're all spiritually dead. They're all spiritually worthless. And then this last oracle that we're going to read now, this one is about who. God's going to explain who it was that caused this calamity to come upon Jerusalem. And there's going to be four categories of men that God blames. So Ezekiel 22, starting at verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. So the first reference there, the first group that has filled Israel and led them to this sorry state, it's the prophets, okay? The spiritual leaders who claim to speak for God. It said that Israel is a land without rain. Um, some, think, some think that that means that perhaps God has shut off the, the rains on the land. And I think basically it just means what it says, that it's just an unclean, dirty country. It's, it's speaking of a spiritual cleansing, okay? And it's in a degraded state right now. Many times moral or spiritual filthiness, that does lead to a filthy society, like in the physical or what or whatever. Spiritual filthiness leads to actual filthiness that you can see. I mean, just look at Philadelphia. You know, if you ever see pictures of Philadelphia these days, I remember as a kid seeing Philadelphia in the movies, you, like, you know, like Rocky. You'd see San Francisco in movies, like uh, there's so many movies with San Francisco. George of the Jungle, you know, one that I watched a lot as a kid. The beautiful cities, the beautiful streets, the the winding roads and places like that, um, the the giant steps that Rocky climbs up in the movies. You know, it all looks so cool in the films. And maybe it did look cool at one time. Maybe these were beautiful places at one time. You look at pictures of them today. You read news articles about them today. These cities have experienced such moral declines over the past several years. You look at them now, they are not pretty to look at at all. I mean, they they wouldn't... They wouldn't be fit for a movie scene these days, unless, unless you're filming a zombie apocalypse movie. But I mean, they just look gross. You know, they're a land, they're a land that's not cleansed, okay? And just like what it's talking about Jerusalem right here. I think that this is the idea that it's trying to paint in our minds when it's talking about Jerusalem. Verse 24 is saying, you haven't seen rain, but devastation is about to rain out across your land. Okay. You haven't you haven't been cleansed, but you're about to be cleansed in a different way. And then it talks about the conspiracy of the prophets. It says the prophets are devouring the people. And I just take that to mean they're using the people for their own advancement, their own enrichment, you might say. From other prophetic writings in the Old Testament, it seems like around this time there were a lot of prophets that were saying, hey guys, God is not mad at you. God's not angry with you. God isn't going to judge us. If he sends us to Babylon, it's not going to last that long. And, And these were all the comfortable lies that people would tell themselves so they could sleep better at night. 
But this stuff was not true. It did not produce repentance in the people. It probably made the prophets more popular. It probably made them some money. You know, true prophets like Jeremiah, they're getting carried away and thrown in prison. Um, the false prophets get to go on cable news. They get interviewed. They have 50,000 Instagram followers. They're, they get to be guest speakers at mega churches. They drive those new Ford Broncos. I'm not saying I'm jealous or anything, but that's what, the, that's what the false prophets get. They seem to live a pretty comfortable lifestyle. And it seems like they have it way better than the true prophets. Okay. But that's just in the here and now. God says he is keeping track and that their day is coming. Ezekiel twenty two twenty six. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. The second charge here is against the priests. They're the other type of spiritual leaders in Israel. The prophets present God to the people. The priests present the people to God. But both are not doing their duties very well. Um, they're supposed to be lifestyles of servitude. But instead, the priests and the prophets have made this all about personal enrichment. They look at ministry as a means to financial gain, I think is how it's phrased in the New Testament at one point. The priests are supposed to teach the people holiness, but they haven't been doing that. They don't have respect for the things of God. They haven't taught the people to respect the things of God. Um, and generally speaking, people don't rise above the spiritual depth of their leaders. That's why it's important for the leaders to be very spiritually deep, because the people you're leading are probably not going to go beyond where you are. Verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. Princes are the third category today. So we've looked at prophets, priests, and princes. Yes, they are all going to start with the same letter this time. <laughs> Ezekiel, he must have read like a modern hermeneutics book. And he's learned that all the main points of your sermon, they're supposed to all start with the same letter. I think that's what he's done. So God is having the same issue with the princes that he has with the prophets and the priests. They are using the people instead of serving the people. In ministry, is intended to be a life of service. Civil leadership is supposed to be about service, serving the people. The, in other countries, they often call their civil servants, as in their, their political leaders, they'll often call them ministers. You know, they'll call you, the instead of the secretary of defense like we have in America, they might call you the minister of defense. Okay, it's not a religious title. It means this is your way of serving the people. That's what it means to be a minister. And so it's not just spiritual ministers who are intended supposed to be intended to serve the people that are under that are under them civil leadership is supposed to be about serving the people it's not about enriching yourself or exalting yourself it's 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 supposed to be about helping them not using them so if god puts you in charge of people that is for them it's not for you to get something from them and that's what the princes the spirit the uh, the political leaders of israel had also forgotten at this time it mentions the prophets in whitewash. Um, I'm not going to get into what that means here. We discussed that back in chapter 13's lesson, so you can go look at that if you need to. Uh, let's go on to verse 29. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Okay, so the people of the land. People are the last P today. We looked at prophets, priests, prince, princes, 
and people, the sins of the people, that was really what last time's lesson was all about, the sins of the people. And God brings a few of them up right here again. He's emphasizing that they don't take care of the lowest members of society. So basically, right in line with what he's getting onto the leaders about, he also gets into onto all the people about it. You're not taking care of each other, okay? You're not taking care of the lowest members, the poor and needy, um, whatever that might be in your society, but you're not looking out for them. And I just thought as I was reading this, man, what if God judge, judged us just based on how we treated the lowest of the low uh, in our city, okay? What if God judged your church by how it treated the poorest, the most downtrodden people who entered its doors, how it treated the disabled, how it treated the poorest people, those people who seem like they have the least to offer your church? Well, how would you do? How would your church do um, if God judged you just on that? And that's something this lesson is really making me think about. And maybe something you can just pray about whenever it gets over. Um, just for God to show you, you know, is there something more we could or should be doing? Um, as Jesus said, when you have a party, don't just invite all the elites that you know. Okay, don't don't sit around hoping the mayor shows up to your party. Don't hope the local millionaire stops by and, you know, makes you look cool by coming to your house, showing up at your party. When we do that, James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. Jesus said whenever you have a, ju- a party, you need to invite all those people who don't normally get invited to parties. And, and I think whenever we show kindness to those lowest members of society, that's getting us closer to the heart of God. Why are the people so crummy? It's because the leaders are crummy. And as I said, people don't usually go beyond the leaders when it comes to their spirituality. So if you want a better nation, pray for better leaders. Let's take a short break, and then we'll talk about our last two verses in this chapter. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. If you appreciate today's Bible study, one way that you could show your appreciation is just by saying a prayer that more people will find it. Uh, Or by sharing it, you know, leave a like or a positive review, help it rise in the rankings. But even if you just say a prayer, I'd be really grateful for that too. Um, If you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment or shoot an email to me at crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. Happy to take questions, recommendations, whatever you'd like to hear about. Uh, Let me know. Next time on this podcast, I have a bit of a prophecy update that I'm working on. I've just about got it ready, and I'll I'll, I'll be getting that out to you next week. We talk about some of the things that are going on right now in Europe, and I think that they might be paving the way for the government of the Antichrist. And so there's just been some really interesting developments this year that I want to make sure you know about. And then in two weeks, I have an interview with a friend of mine. He just released a book about angels. And I just finished reading the book this past week. I've already got the interview. I've got that program done. So at the time I recorded it, I hadn't read it. I have read it now. It's an excellent book. And so I'm going to share with you about it um, pretty soon. But it's a very well-researched book. Uh, It talks about the appearances of angels in modern times. I don't want to say more than that because I don't want to give too much away. But I got an interview about that coming up in a few weeks. So today, just to recap, this lesson really got me thinking about what God expects of us, Um, that those who operate in a prophetic realm, that they really need to do that with trepidation. Uh, Because when you do that, your words are going to come under a lot of scrutiny. And and I think that scrutiny is justified. You know, we got to avoid the temptation to profit off of our gifts. 
um, whatever your gifts are, if there's something in the prophetic realm or not. But be careful about that. These evil prophets that we're talking about in Ezekiel's day, they were seeking treasure. They were seeking to enrich themselves. Uh, but really, being a prophet should be a nonprofit organization. <laughs> it's it's safer that way. So God expected that from the prophets. God expected the priests, the spiritual leaders. He, what his expectation of them was, was to teach people to respect holiness, to teach people the fear of the Lord, the, the sacred. God expected the government leaders to see their role as serving people, not using people. And then God expects the people to serve each other. And the main theme that I thought, thought about as I read all these different categories of what God was upset about was exploitation. Everybody was exploiting each other and using each other for their own personal gain. And if you want to know what God expects from your relationships, just do the opposite of exploitation. Okay, give people more than what they pay for. Value people who don't usually get valued. Value people even if you're not going to get anything out of it. That is actually what God expects from us in our relationships. And especially for those of us who are leaders, that's what God is wanting from us. And, you know, unfortunately, we all fall short of that. We all make mistakes or we sin or we get selfish or, or, or whatever. You know, we all fall short. And Israel had fallen short right here. And so let's look at how God ends this chapter of Ezekiel 22. It says in verse 30, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So the breach that he talks about right there, it means there's a gap. Okay, if you ever heard the expression before that Christians use to stand in the gap for someone, it's actually coming from this set of verses right here. He says there's a gap in the wall. The enemy is right on the other side. It, this gap is going to mean destruction for everybody unless someone will get in there and fill in the gap. If someone will stand in the void, okay? Someone's got to get between man and the consequences of man's actions. Someone has got to go make an appeal to God for them. A good reference, cross-reference to look at on this is Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23. It talks about how Israel had sinned so much in the wilderness, God was just going to wipe all of them out. But it says Moses stood in the gap, and he turned away God's wrath. One good leader, that was all it took to save the people, and that's something that they don't have right now. They don't even have one good leader. It wasn't going to be any of Israel's prophets. They were all junk. It wasn't going to be there, any of their priests. It wasn't going to be any of their princes. It wasn't going to be any of the people. The people weren't even caring about each other. They have no savior. And no savior means no hope. And before we get too hard on Israel, remember that we were once in their shoes. We were all in a hopeless, precarious position. Our eternity in hell, it was just a heartbeat away. It was just one car wreck away. One bad slip on the ice away. We were once enemies of God. We were once objects of his wrath. There was a gap between us and God, and there was no way for any of us to close the gap. But Jesus, Jesus did it. Jesus closed that gap between God and man. And how did he do it? Well, by literally, he got between God and man. He was suspended on a cross. He was hung between earth and heaven. And he connected that gap. 
So what about all that wrath that was waiting for us? Well, Jesus took all that wrath. I, I don't believe it was nails and thorns that caused him the most pain as he hung there on the cross. I believe it was that separation from God that he felt on that cross, the love relationship that had existed for all of eternity between the Father and the Son. It was severed as he hung there for those hours right there in the gap, taking all that wrath that we, we were going to be objects of wrath. It was all transferred to him, and he, he took our deserved punishment. And I can't even imagine what that felt like. Uh, and because I never have to go to hell now, I don't have to imagine what that would feel like. I'll never have to know what it felt like to take the wrath of God because Jesus already took it for me. And that's the gospel. That's not the comfortable part of the gospel. You know, all this hell and wrath stuff, this is not comfortable. This is not comfortable talk. You know, we want to say Jesus saves and that's positive. That feels good to say that. But that's an empty emotion if we don't also talk about what Jesus saved us from. Israel in Ezekiel's day, they didn't have a Jesus. In their day, there was no one to stand in the gap and avert God's wrath for them. In a couple chapters from now, the city is going to be wiped out. And God says right here, if there had been one good leader, that could have made the difference. And they didn't have anyone there to make the difference for them. But someday, Jesus did. The reason that I am not an object of God's wrath anymore is because Jesus became an object of God's wrath. Some people don't like to talk about God's wrath. Even Ezekiel at the start of this chapter, we talked about this in the last lesson, but even he doesn't want to get up there and talk about the wrath of God. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't want to be one of these fire and brimstone pe preachers. He thinks that doesn't sound very nice. He doesn't like the negative attention that it brings to him. But this was the message that God put out there because it's the truth. Um, people don't like to talk about God's wrath. They just want to think happy thoughts. They bristle at the thought of a God who judges sin. But if God wasn't a God of wrath, then the cross meant nothing because it meant Jesus was saving us from nothing. If there was no wrath to save us from, then why did Jesus die? This is one of the reasons that the, the progressive depiction of God that's so popular nowadays, he's as this inoffensive deity who never gets angry at anyone except for Trump supporters. This is a false gospel. It's not talking about the very real wrath of God. Um, if you remember this song from the Gettys a few years ago, uh, it's called In Christ Alone. One of the most beautiful modern hymns that you can find, if probably the most beautiful, um, quite easily. It's a wonderful song. You might recognize some of the lyrics from it. It says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. This is a beautiful modern hymn. It's one of my favorites. I mean, it's just as good as any of the old ones, if you ask me. In 2013, the PCUSA group, that's a Presbyterian denomination, they wanted to include that song in a new edition of their hymnal that they were going to put out to churches in their denomination. Um, they just wanted to change one line, that part where it says, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because the PCUSA, that's one of these progressive churches, they teach a false gospel of a wrathless God. And so that line didn't fit with their theology. And so they asked the Gettys if they could change that line to the love of God was magnified. Well, yes, the love of God was magnified on the cross, but the Gettys told them no, because they understood there was an agenda behind trying to change that lyric. These people wanted to worship a God of their imagination, a God with no wrath. And the Gettys wouldn't have it. So I'm, I'm really grateful for them 
to, I'm really grateful to them for standing their ground on that. And guys, we are all gonna be challenged in these last days about where we stand. This world is full of objects of God's wrath. There's a gap between them and God, and they need someone to bridge that gap. Someone who will tell them about what the Lord did for them on Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago. They need just what you and I needed. They need someone to tell them about it. Because we were all objects of God's wrath. Were. I'm still thankful for that past tense. But for others, is present tense. This world needs more people to stand in the gap before it's too late. Jesus stood in the gap. Will you? Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that because of Jesus' death on the cross, he has connected the gap. Oh, 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 oh